the National Archives podcast series, Portillo's State Secrets, presented by Tommy Norton. This talk was recorded on the 7th of April 2015 at the National Archives, Geek. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Emily says, I, my name is Tommy Norton, and I worked here for about four years. And for the past year, I've been working as an independent researcher. And one of the projects I was hired for was Portillo State Secrets. The original idea, it was, it's, it's a production uh, by BBC Northern Ireland. And the original idea was actually to focus on newly declassified documents. So in other words, documents which are released at the end of every year as part of the 30-year rule. It's now moving down to a 20-year rule. Uh, but there were going to be a number of difficulties with that. Um, practically speaking, there would have been a delay between when the documents are released at the end of the year, a new year, and the TV screen going on. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't quite have worked. And also, there is also a, um, a very good show on BBC Radio 4 called UK Confidential, which comes out on the day that the new files are released. And that's, that's on radio. It's a bit easier to do on radio than, than on TV. Uh, another reason is that if that kind of series would have focused on a very narrow group of records, it would only have focused on you know, records up to about 1986, where we are at the moment. So it really wouldn't really have showcased the huge variety of documents that there are in this building. Um, as we say in the intro to the show, I think it's a, it's a thousand years of history. So we wanted to show a bit, a bit more than beyond the, just the, the newly declassified stuff. So with that, we set ourselves a huge challenge, really. How do you pick 30 documents... Uh, that's three per episode, ten episodes, uh, from more than 20 million in the archives. Uh, so it was, a, it was a big challenge, and I spent most of last summer here looking at documents and discussing with the producers. And then in September, we had ten days of filming here at the archives uh, where we filmed all the sequences you see with Michael uh, and the documents, and also several of the interviews. Uh, that's Michael talking to Merlin Holland, who's Oscar Wilde's grandson. So yeah, I, we knew we wanted to include some of the kind of iconic documents. I know that's an overused word, but I think there are iconic documents here. So we wanted to include some of those uh, for people who might not know about them. So for instance, we, we've got Guy Fawkes' confession, two, two, his um, signed confession made before and after torture, and you can see the effect that torture has had on his handwriting. <laughs> Oscar Wilde, that's, that's the Marcus of Queensbury's calling card, which the Marcus of Queensbury uh, used to allege that Oscar Wilde was a sodomite. Obviously, it precipitated a disastrous libel action on the part of Oscar Wilde, um, which led to his own imprisonment. Uh, and he was in prison for two years and never fully recovered from that. So I know that Mi Michael said that was probably, as you can see, it's a, it's a tiny, tiny card. And we're very lucky to be able to film the original. And it's probably the smallest document that we used in the series. But I think Michael said it's one, also one of the most powerful because of the effect it had on... On, on that man's life. And then from the, from the smallest to the largest, this huge document, and this is um, Richard II's uh, treasure roll, and when fully unrolled, it's 80 foot long, and we weren't actually able to, to unroll it all the way for the series, but it has, it's, it's, as you think it might be, it's um, a list of his treasure, King Richard II's treasure. It has 1,200 entries, but the only piece which survives today is that crown which you see there that's in a museum in in germany everything else was destroyed most of it during cromwell's time so uh, yeah that, that's probably the longest one we looked at this is the first use of the of the name jack the ripper it's a letter sent to 
the Central News Agency in September 1888. The interesting thing about that one is that it went missing for decades. It, was, uh, it, was, it went missing from police records for decades and then turned up, it was sent anonymously to Scotland Yard's Crime Museum, the Black Museum, about on the 100th anniversary or just before the 100th anniversary of the, of the killings. Um, so we're not quite sure where it was, but obviously it's ended up here at the National Archives. And again, that was another one that we were able to use the original document, which is, which is great. I think if you order it in the reading room, you get a facsimile. So we wanted to include some of those kind of I iconic documents. Um, but also, if you've ever worked here or if you've ever spoken to someone who works here, they might tell you about these, but they also tell you about some of the kind of quirky things that we have, like Hitler's x-rays of Hitler's skull, um, or the John Lennon's naughty drawings, or um, the, the various police files about the Rolling Stones drugs busts and stuff so we wanted to include some of those kind of quirky ones and also you know files which could be called which might never have seen the light of day in other circumstances what we might call our hidden history so for instance uh, the speech the queen might have made on uh, in the event of world war three the passport the fake passport created for adolf hitler by britain's special operations executive in the second world war so we wanted to include some of those kind of documents as well and yeah, I mean, it can be bewildering if you're a first-timer, if you're not familiar with the archive, where to start. To quote Donald Rumsfeld, you know, we've got the, the known knowns and the unknown knowns, but there are also an unquantifiable number of unknown unknowns, things that we still don't know that we have, and, people, and discoveries are being made the whole time. That's not surprising if you think that we have 200 kilometres of shelving here, and it's being added to at a rate of around a kilometre every year. So it's... Uh, even if the press office, and they probably won't thank me for saying so, held a press, a press event every single week, we probably still wouldn't get through all the, the volume of huge, the huge volume of material that's being released every year. So that's the great thing. That's one of the joys of the place, is that we're still making discoveries. And discovery is the name of the online catalogue. But you, yeah, our, the other thing to bear in mind is that only around just over 5% of all the documents here have been digitised. So, and most of those are digitised because they have a specific um, value for family historians, in other words, census records and that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, 95% of the paper in this building is still, you still have to come here to view it. And the way we, you know, you navigate around that is by using the online catalogue uh, discovery. So when, you, when you're using the, the search engine, it's, it's important to bear in mind that you're not searching every word of every document. Google will, will do, if you type into Google, you'll search, you know, every, it'll go through millions and millions of documents and, and pick out keywords. But if you here you're just searching essentially the title, the date, key, key, key data like that. So it's impo important to keep your initial search pretty broad and then you can narrow it down using the options on the left-hand side. Now, you do get very detailed descriptions. So this is the entry for <coughs> Hitler's x-rays. <laughs> initially, it was just called Adolf Hitler Investigation into Whereabouts. But in 1995, I think, a researcher discovered that it also contained x-rays of his skull. And so that, that data was added to the, to the catalogue. So, yeah, if you saw that, you'd have a pretty good idea of what it might contain. And this file contains five x-rays uh, taken between September and October 1944, um, not that long after he'd survived an assassination attempt at his Wolf's Lair headquarters. This is when Count von Stauffenburg brought in a briefcase bomb, slid it under the table... Uh, and it exploded, but Hitler was probably saved by a sort of heavy wooden table leg and just suffered perforated eardrums, and he had sinus problems, which is why he had these x-rays taken a few months later. 
But actually, the file also contains a mass of medical data uh, collected by the Allies uh, at the end of the Second World War. I mean, all kinds of strange stuff, Ma mainly based on interviews with his personal physician, a guy called Theo Morell, which the document describes as a money-crazed quack doctor who believes in his own quackery. <laughs> yeah, and he, he's pretty, pretty nuts. I mean, it also has you know, details of all the drugs he was taking, psychological evaluations, the fact that he was being injected with gluco glucose, all kinds of strange stuff. Now, why was all this stuff collected? Well, if you, the other thing to, you can do, actually, is if you imagine this, it's focused in on one file, this particular file. But on, on discovery, you also have a very useful function called browse by reference, or browse by hierarchy. And that enables you to kind of zoom out from that file and to see where it sits within the whole file series. And you'll see that actually this is one of five files about Hitler's whereabouts, which run from 1945 to 1954. So as late as 1954, they were still talking about where Hitler was. Why? Because, very simply, the Russians got there first, took what remained of Hitler and Ava Brown. And so the Allies were going on eyewitness accounts, circumstantial evidence. They didn't have the body. But these files also include the basis for Hugh Trevor Roper's report into Hitler's um, whereabouts, uh, which became a book he wrote in 1947, The Last Days of Hitler. Um, but yeah, he, he says at the beginning, with, in the absence of physical evidence, I just have to go on what people have told me. And the Russians had, had taken the remains, they'd exhumed it and buried it several times. It ended up in a, in a facility in Magdeburg in East Germany. And in 1970, this facility was due to be handed over to the East German government. And the head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov, uh, was, was concerned that if people knew that Hitler's remains were there, it might become a shrine to neo-Nazis. So he ordered that the remains be dug up, ground into dust, and flung into the river. And that's, that's what happened. <laughs> there is a sort of postscript to this, is that actually some fragments of skull and jawbone were collected from a crater, from the crater um, where Hitler's body was discovered and actually ended up in the Russian state archives. Well, when the skull fragments were tested in 2009 by a group of American scientists, they actually said, well, this belongs to a 20- to 40-year-old woman. <laughs> so still a bit of a mystery about what exactly ended up in the, in the Russian archives. But the Russians released their version of the autopsy in 1970, um, which, which some people take slightly with a pinch of salt. So, yeah, that, that description was quite detailed. If you were confronted with something like this, you might not have as much idea of what it might contain. You wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you because I was at the press event where this file was released and there was a group of about two dozen national journalists who had no idea what it was. But also there was a guy called Peter Hennessy, Lord Hennessy, who's a real expert on the secret state, and he knew exactly what it was. Wintech Cymex stands for Warning and Intelligence Exercise and Civil Military Exercise. And essentially what it was, it was a cabinet war game exercise which was carried out every two years during the Cold War to replicate uh, what would happen in the conflict between NATO and the Soviet Union, or as they put it in the exercise, orange and blue forces. And in this scenario, in uh, March 83, they imagine an orange invasion, a Soviet invasion of Eastern Europe, and the scenario ends with the blue leaders of NATO deciding that they need to uh, carry out a first strike against the Soviet Union. And it's incredibly detailed. The civil servants who created this this war game uh, went into incredible detail. I mean, they, they, have, they imagine what the newspaper headlines would have been like during the conflict. 
they uh, they tell the cabinet ministers you know there would have been there was war uh, anti-war protests looting of medical supplies alcohol sales had gone through the roof during the the crisis everyone thought nuclear war was about to happen hundred uh, five hundred thousand people had fled to the hills of Wales to escape so they, they go into incredible detail about what how it might play out and one of the things that they do incredibly is imagine what the Queen might say if she were to address the nation on the verge of nuclear war. So you get this extraordinary speech, speech that she, she never gave, that she probably never saw, imagining what she might say to the country. And she, she says, you know, a few months ago, we were all enjoying the warmth and fellowship of a family Christmas. Now this madness of war is once more spreading through the world. And our brave country must again prepare itself to survive against great odds. And she talks about listening to her father, uh, inspiring words on that fateful day in 1939. Not for a single moment did I imagine that this solemn and awful duty would one day face me. And she says, the enemy is not the soldier with the rifle, nor the airman prowling the skies, but the deadly power of abused technology. And she talks uh, about my beloved son, Andrew, at this moment uh, in action with his unit. And he had actually been in action in, with the Falklands uh, the year before. Uh, so that's, that's, And then she says, As we strive together to fight off this new evil, let us pray for our country and men of good will, wherever they may be. So it's quite a sort of stirring speech. It's a shame she never got to make it. <laughs> well, no, it's not... <laughs> probably not a shame <laughs> but actually in um, this did come at a very cold or very hot moment in the in the cold war this in 83 you know in the soviet union you had a kind of aging paranoid leadership andropov again he was head of the soviet union bit and he was very paranoid and in on the american side you had um uh, reagan who was sort of up in the ante a bit with his evil empire rhetoric and leaving marxism leninism on the ash heap of history so it was, it was quite a chilly moment. And actually later that year, in November 83, another exercise called Able Archer, another NATO war game exercise, almost ended in real nuclear war. <laughs> because the Soviet intelligence saw that this build-up um, to DEFCON 1, which was the highest level, and believed that it was a real thing and started arming their epo- weapons and pointing them at, <laughs> at the West. And it was only some sort of clear thinking uh, on the part of some of the Soviet um, intelligence officers that actually prevented all-out war. That was probably the closest we came to, to nuclear war, apart from the Cuban Missile Crisis. So these exercises can go wrong. Sounds obvious, but it's important to bear in mind that this is a government archive. So by def- definition, you have records of government. And although there are exceptions to this, you don't tend to get the sort of personal letters and personal diaries, although you do get that as well. Everything created was for an official purpose. Uh, and sometimes you can think, oh, dry, you know, these official documents can look a little bit dry or a bit sparse. But actually, I think they can carry extraordinary power because they're backed by the full force of the state. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples from the series. So this document here, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a ledger, very neatly laid out, name, age, uh, colour, uh, employment. But these... This is actually a list of slaves, and not just any slaves, but slaves that belong to the, the Honourable and Reverend Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, and that was the missionary arm of the Church of England, and they had become a major 
slave owner as a result of a charitable uh, bequest in 1710. And at the time that this register was taken in 1817, they owned two plantations in Barbados and around 330 slaves. And they're listed here. And I think what struck me when I saw it, it was the oldest slave is 90, although they're not still working. And the youngest is just a few days, or this one just born, born on the plantation and born into slavery. And yeah, this, this document was created in 1817. The sla slave trade had been abolished in 1807, but slavery itself wasn't abolished until 1833. So these registers weren't just created as a kind of census of slaves. They were an inventory, because these people were property, so that when slavery was abolished, their owners could claim compensation. And that's exactly what, what, ha what did happen. The society claimed £8,500, and there are documents in the National Archives which, which show this, uh, for the 400 slaves it owned in 1833. And all in all, the British government paid out £20 million pounds um, to 3,000 families in 1833 who, who, who were slave-only families. That represented around 40% of the entire budget that year, equivalent to around £16.5 billion pounds this year. So that's incredible. And as a postscript to that, in 2006, the Church of England's General Synod did issue a, an apology, formal apology to the descendants of, of, of slaves owned by the church. So there's an example of official document you know, that has, I think, power. And this is another one, sad, very sad case of Ruth Ellis, who was a 28-year-old mother of two and was hung at Holloway Prison in July 1955. She was the last woman to be executed in Britain. And her case really had a significant impact in turning uh, public opinion against capital punishment. And as I see, you know, it's a standard form, record of an execution carried out standard form but uh, you know when the first time you see it so it's uh, very sad to see that i mean this um is the governor's signature that's charity taylor lady taylor she was ironically enough the first woman governor of a prison she presided over the the last hanging of, of a woman prisoner so very sad case but there are masses of file, files on ruth ellis actually that are here including psycho psychological evaluations. And, and the government of the day came under huge pressure, not just here but abroad, um, to, to give her a reprieve. I mean, it was a very sad case. If, if it had come today, she might not even have been found guilty. Well, she admitted the murder, but she had suffered uh, physical and uh, mental abuse, and she'd had a miscarriage not long before she carried out the murder. So it was a terribly sad case. But it probably did have... It probably did mark a big moment in the campaign against capital punishment. And eventually, the last hangings in Britain were carried out on, in 1964. And then the death penalty was suspended a year later and eventually abolished altogether. But interestingly enough, the, the last gallows weren't dismantled until 1992. So they obviously sort of kept them on just in case it came back, you know. Yeah, so having said that official documents can be dry and stuff, I'm now going to completely contradict myself and... This is one of my favourites from the, from the series. This was a report. For, uh, these, are, these are home office files. But this is a report from Mr Thomas, who was the secretary of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And it later got the royal prefix and was, is the RSPCA as we know it today. So, yeah, in, um, 
1837, they were sent to Stamford in Lincolnshire, where there was a 700-year-old tradition of running bulls through the streets, a bit like as they do in Pamplona. So they'd been doing this every St. Bryce's Day, which is the 13th of November, for about 700 years. Um, But obviously the Society for the Cruelty of Animals, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, was uh, keen to stop this. So they they went up to Stamford with two uh, constables and the secretary, and the, the, the file is great because it's really like a clash of cultures between the men from, from the society who were, you know, this is a society founded above a L- London coffee shop in 1824 um, by a group of social reformers, including Wilb- William Wilberforce. And then the very indifferent local magistrates who don't really want to enforce this law. And then the rowdy townspeople who are just outright resentful that the Londoners are coming up here and telling us what to do and not to run our bulls. And it kind of reminds me of like a scene from a Western, you know, when someone walks into a saloon and the doors are swinging and everyone turns to stare. <laughs> I'm gonna, so I'll read a little bit from the, from the file. So Mr. Thomas says that when he went in to see the magistrates, during my interview with them, in came a man who stared at me very hard. And one of the magistrates said to the fellow, this is a private meeting. He said, no, it ain't. I see here this gentleman pointing at me and these men, they are strangers. Therefore, it is not private. Besides, I have been sworn in as a special constable. I have a right to be here. No, you have not, said the magistrate. And we request you go out. Very well. But let me have another look at these persons. Then, turning to us for about a minute and a half, he stared me full in the face and, scanning me from top to toe, said, Three pretty fellows you are. I shall know you tomorrow. Mr. Newcomb observed that you are intoxicated. He replied, you are very mistaken and assert a falsehood. And after bandying more words, he departed. Well, his, their two constables didn't fare much better. They came back the next day. And as you see there, upon entering the town hall, they were groaned and hissed at, and the greatest disorder prevailed. Shouts of bull, bull, yahoo, yahoo, shook the building. And threats of the most disgusting nature were used towards them, and language most obscene applied to them. One fellow with a long, pointed stick... approached Rogerson and told him death stared him in the face so they didn't get a very good reception this was a couple of years after parliament had passed the 1835 cruelty to animals act which outlawed not just you know baiting of bulls and stuff but cockfighting and fighting with dogs that kind of thing and Britain was one of the first countries in the world to introduce that type of legislation and the passage of that law was pretty much entirely down to the work of the society. And it led directly to the end of this old tradition of running the bulls through the streets of Stamford. They weren't able to prevent it in 1837, but in 1839 the government actually sent troops up there. They couldn't prevent it. The cost of providing these soldiers was laid on the local ratepayers, and they <laughs> that soon put an end to it. So that was the last time it happened, was in 1839. So I, that was quite... Like, um, a good story. Yeah, so we don't just have documents and text. We also have photos, maps, objects. This is actually uh, one of three iron pike heads uh, in a little box. And they're vicious looking thing. They're about 16 inches long with a jagged point at one end. And they were exhibits in the trial of the Cato Street conspirators, who were a group of radicals who had planned to kill the Prime Minister Lord Liverpool and his cabinet and to overthrow the government in 1820. 
and they were led by Arthur Thistlewood, and they thought they could take advantage of the sort of confusion around after the death of um, King George III, and they hoped that their actions might spark a, a revolution. But unbeknownst to them, there was a government spy in their midst, a guy called George Edwards, and all the conspirators were apprehended at a meeting in Cater Street on the 23rd of February, 1820. Um, five of the men were hanged for high treason, uh, and five had their death sentences commuted but were transported for life. And these pikeheads were produced in court, uh, were part of a batch of 250 ordered by the conspirators as a way of arming themselves and their supporters. And in it, not just that, but one of the conspirators, a guy called James Ings, had told the others that he planned to use his knife to decapitate uh, the members of the cabinet <laughs> and to mount their heads on these pikes. Um, particularly, he didn't like uh, Castlereagh and Sidmouth. Uh, the, Sidmouth was the Home Secretary. Uh, so he was going to mount their heads on these pikes and then take them to Westminster Bridge. But in actual fact, they were going to attack the government at a supposed dinner at the house of Lord Harrowby. Actually, the notice put in the newspaper about that dinner had been planted by the government. The dinner was never going to happen. And George Edwards, who was really acting as an adjunct provocateur within the conspirators, gave the game away. And so historians believe, although they were uh, without doubt intent on a revolution, it was also a very convenient one because the government was able to use Cato Street as, a, uh, as an excuse to, to crack down on, on all forms of dissent. And they had, the previous year, uh, a group, uh, a protest at St. Peter's Fields in, near Manchester had been um, attacked. And you get the, that's the Peterloo Massacre. Fifteen people died in that. But yeah, uh, th they didn't end up too well. But th most of the demands were met eventually in 1832 with the Great Reform Act. Yeah, we also have lots of artworks. But this is uh, actually a file from the Director of Public Prosecutions with the case papers against a guy called Eugene Schuster, who was an American art gallery owner, who was charged under an obscure 1839 law for displaying a series of sexually explicit lithographs by a certain John Lennon, uh, showing him and Yoko Ono in various uh, positions, <coughs> shall we say. Uh, so these 14 lithographs, uh, and you, get, you can see them in the file, uh, were seized by police in January 1970, two days after the exhibition, which was called Bag One, had opened at the London Arts Gallery. And the, the file's great. You get some nice statements there from uh, uh, Nancy Creer, who was the Surrey housewife who, who complained, and also um, Detective Inspector Frederick Luff, who was uh, from Scotland Yard's Obscene Publication Squad, who, who mounted the raid. And uh, I've got a bit there, but his... Yeah, his um, his statement is quite, quite amusing. He says, Should these lith lithographs be adjudged works of great artistic merit or not obscene, I feel sure the progressives have no need to repeal the obscenity laws, i.e. nothing is obscene. Further, many toilet walls depict works of similar merit. It is perhaps charitable to suggest that they are the work of a sick mind. And he actually says, The only danger I can see to a successful prosecution is the argument that they are so pathetic as to be incapable of influencing anyone and therefore unable to deprave or corrupt. However, two points must be borne in mind. One, the great influence of John Lennon as a beetle. And two, the whole affair is a commercial enterprise. So, yeah, this... Um, and actually, D.I. Luff made a habit of a sort of high-profile raid. A few months after this raid, 
he raided the offices of the counterculture magazine Oz, and later he took exception to the musical O Calcutta. So he was sort of an officer from the old school, you know, who uh, obviously didn't didn't like this permissive society of the of the 1960s. But his own <laughs> police squad uh, didn't turn out to be less less than less than clean. Because a couple of years later, the Dirty Squad, or the Obscene Publication Squad at Scotland Yard, were, ca were caught up in a massive corruption investigation. Uh, it, it was found that they were taking money from famous Soho pornographers like uh, Jim Humphreys and various gangsters who rang the Soho sex shops. So basically, they were taking massive bribes to look the other way in Soho, but then they were mounting these high-profile raids on well-known people like Lennon and Oz. So it looked like they were doing something basically, because actually they were, they were taking huge, huge bribes to, get to look the other way. I mean, that, is st that corruption scandal is, by the way, still probably the biggest corruption scandal that has ever happened to police in Britain. I mean, it, it, took, it took down, eventually, the head of the Flying Squad, the head of the Serious Crime Squad, the head of the Obscene Publication Squad. So, uh, quite interesting. Um, and actually, what happened with this case? Well, the magistrate dismissed it in the end, because they charged Schuster, who was a gallery owner, under this obscure 1839 law called the Metropolitan Police Act and that prohibited any person from exhibiting indecent or obscene prints in any thoroughfare or public place. So the argument hinged on whether this gallery, which was just off New Bond Street, could be counted as a public place and they thought not so he eventually he, he threw out the, the prosecution. But we still have copies of the, um, of the pictures. <laughs> this is another uh, fun one. This was... Um, this is a, from a police report into the escape of the spy, George Blake, from Wormwood Scrubs Prison in October 1966. Uh, now, George Blake, if you remember, uh, had been an MI6 agent who, who had turned out had been working for the KGB. And he'd been sentenced to 42 years in prison, which at the time was one of the harshest sentences ever handed down. And he was about five years into his sentence when he hopped over the wall <laughs> using that rope ladder there. This file was released in 2008, although the names of several of the prison officers who were working at the time are still redacted, incidentally. But it's interesting because it offers a... Not only does it offer a picture of a kind of lax state of security at the time, um, but also, you know, a glimpse into the mind of... the state of mind of George Blake himself. He's described as being polite, well-behaved, cooperative. He was visited by his mother two days before his escape, and he, quote, appeared far happier than one would have expected for a man with his problems. He was probably uh, happy because a couple of days later, he escaped. <laughs> and uh, he used this crude rope ladder, which was reinforced with knitting needles, and more about that later. And that's a picture of a pot of pink chrysanthemums, which was found at the scene. And yeah, the police sort of investigated and, and concluded quite rightly that he had outside help. Although probably not the outside help that they were imagining. The newspaper reports at the time were full of sort of sensational accounts of it's the KGB have managed to spring one of their agents out of our, one of our prisons. Uh, it wasn't actually. It was, it was uh, three former inmates who sort of felt sorry for Blake, um, an Irishman called Sean Bork and two anti-nuclear activists, uh, Michael Randall and Pat Pottle. And the whole thing is quite sort of comic in a way um, in its amateurish, amateurishness. You know, they managed to smuggle in a walkie-talkie and then Blake slipped away while the other prisoners were, were watching a film, got through a window, and then this rope had been flung over the wall. 
but they, and it, yeah, it's reinforced with steel knitting needles, and the police spend an inordinate amount of time on these knitting needles. I mean, it's that there's a file that thick where they ascertain that 485 shops in Britain sell these knitting needles. <laughs> so what good that did them in the investigation, I don't know, because probably he'd long gone by then. And this pot of flowers, this completely bewildered the police, because they thought, what on earth had this to do with it? Well, in the end, Sean Burke later admitted that he had just been carrying it because he was to look like a visitor to Hammersmith Hospital, which is just next door, and then he just left it on the ground. But police are completely bewildered by what this has got to do with it. But, yeah, the plan was, hadn't been quite worked out that well because they'd worked out how to get him over, but once he got to the other side, the rope was no longer secured, so he just fell down the other side and broke his wrist. And they bundled him into a car, shot up into the night, had a crash and almost got discovered, and then they were moved around various safe houses in London. Um, and by this point, police were watching every port, so it was, they did, well, how on earth are we going get, to get him out? And one of the... One of the, the things they consider is actually giving Blake a huge dose of a chemical called melodinin, uh, which is used to treat vitiligo, and this would have turned his face black. But then George Blake, understandably, was a bit worried about the side effects of taking these huge quantities of this drug, so he, uh, they decided not to do that. But in the end, they, Michael Randall smuggled him out of the country in a VW camper van. <laughs> And so they just put him in the bed of the camper van, and his family, his children slept on top, and they just told everyone they were going on a family holiday, got a fer ferry over to the continent, and drove to East Germany, family holiday in East Germany. <laughs> and he jumped out of the, jumped out at one of the checkpoints and said, um, can I speak to a KGB officer? I'm George Blake. <laughs> and he's still living in Russia. He's 92. He's living on a KGB pension, and he's a he treated as a hero over there. But he undoubtedly did do a lot of damage um, to British intelligence agents, uh, not only giving away agents in Germany, but also revealing the existence of Operation Gold, which was the underground tunnel that we'd um, dug into East Berlin to tap the phone lines. So he did do a lot of damage, uh, no doubt about it. But this escape shocked the British public because it came less than a year after Ronnie Biggs, one of the great uh, train robbers, had escaped. <laughs> so the police... So the government um, commissioned a report into prison escapes and security, which was chaired by Lord Mountbatten, and he recommended you know, classifying prisoners according to their security risk, so category A, category B, and that's still the basis of, of the system that we have today. So we've talked about documents, and another example, if you like, of the power of documents. I mean, I think you could say that any number of documents in this building, if they'd been known about at the time, would have caused intense embarrassment you know if for instance people had known that special branch were spying on mrs simpson and the future king edward VIII, that would have been um, pretty embarrassing and any number of political plans and ideas which if they'd been revealed at the time would have been very embarrassing um and caused headlines and actually indeed did cause headlines when they were released 20 20 30 years later but there are perhaps perhaps few fewer documents that you could say might actually have changed history if they'd been known about and this i think is one of them this is uh, Operation Unthinkable, and the clues in the name. Only a very select group of people would have seen this document, and it was only released to the National Archives in 1998. And what it is is a plan drawn up in the days after VE Day to, for a new war against the Soviet Union. 
And that's, you know, the code name for this operation epitomized the scale of what was being considered, Operation Unthinkable. But there it is, and the subtitle is Russia, Threat to Western Civilization. And Winston Churchill instructed the joint planning staff to set out a plan for war with Russia. And the, the objective was to impose upon Russia the will of the United States and the British Empire. And the conclusions of this are the only way we can achieve our objective with certainty is the defeat of Russia in a total war. Total war with Russia is not possible. The result of a total war with Russia is not possible to forecast. But the one thing certain is that to win, it would take us a very long time. They even incredibly choose a date for the commencement of, commencement of hostilities, the 1st of July 1945. That's when the Allies would launch a surprise offensive against the Soviet Union in the hope that they could win a quick victory. To give you an idea of how secret this was, um, General Ismay, who was Churchill's chief military assistant, wrote to him on the 8th of June saying, in the attached report on Operation Unthinkable, the chiefs of staff have set out the bare facts. They felt that the less put on paper, the better. But despite that, you actually do get quite detailed plans. Um, they decided the Allies would need 47 divisions to attack the Red Army, including 14 tank divisions, 10 reformed German divisions, <laughs> incredibly. So we defeated them a few weeks ago, but we'll get them on our side. Luckily, the, the report does kind of bring Churchill to his senses, if you like, and he changed his tack and says, well, you know, they had overwhelming superiority in terms of land forces, around two to one. Um, it would have been pretty suicidal to launch an attack on them, particularly as the Americans weren't that keen. But then he says, well, how could we defend our island if the Russians continue their advance to the sea? So he writes back, pray have a study made of how we could defend our island, assuming France and the Low Countries were powerless to resist the Russian advance to the sea. And he says, by retaining the code word unthinkable, uh, the staffs will realise that this remains a precautionary study of what I hope is still a hypothetical uh, scenario contingency. Uh, and they write back, so they, they look at this again and they write back and say, well, it's only really by the use of rockets and other new weapons that the Russians could develop any serious threat uh, to the security of the country in the initial stages. Invasion or a serious attack could only be undertaken after a period lasting some years, preparation lasting some years. But I find it incredible that just a few weeks after the most catastrophic war mankind had ever known, uh, Churchill's military chiefs were drawing up plans for a new war. And not only that, but using the recently defeated German troops on their side. It's incredible. And this was a full year before Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, so it shows he was already thinking along, along these lines, you know. And he would have known that the Americans were close to completing the Manhattan Project and were only a week away from dropping the atomic bomb on Japan. But by that point, Churchill was no longer the prime minister. He'd been defeated in the election of that year. But yeah, it raises lots of interesting questions. You know, how might history have been di different if they'd used this plan, if the Cold War had been a hot war right from the beginning, if M America had used their atomic bombs on Russia instead of on Japan? And that's another of the joys of the National Archives, I guess, is that not only do you get a definitive record of the decisions and the events in our history, but you also get a glimpse into the minds of the people who made those decisions, and also any number of alternative histories if our leaders had chosen different options than those that we should put before them. So I hope you enjoyed the series.
This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.